I have uh, two separate portions of this talk. The first portion, I'm going to talk about my relationship with Jesus Christ and what that means. If that's not of interest to you, just bear with me. That's only going to be about 20% of the talk. The rest of it is going to have nothing to do with, with, with my faith, per se. It is going to be a purely scientific demonstration. So if that's what you want, there's going to be plenty of it. All right. What I'd like to do, because this has been organized by, by Campus Crusade, by crew, by crew so I'd like to open in a word of prayer. If this is not something that you're familiar with, just roll with it for, for a minute, and then we'll be past that, and we're going to get right into it, okay? Let's pray. Abba, Father, I thank you, Father, for the opportunity to come and to speak in this place, on this campus, where you visited me 40 years ago and spoke into my heart and into my life. And Father, I pray for your outpouring in this time that you would take and awake if there be anybody here who's not a believer in Jesus, that you would show them yourself. Kindly speak to their hearts, I pray. And Father, for those here who know you that are struggling, Father, draw them closer to you because of this time. Lord, I lift this time up to you and I ask for your grace and your mercies and your power for the glory of Jesus. Amen. I'm going to start by just speaking a little bit about an overview of the different projects that we have in my group. And uh, we work on many different topics, ranging from laser-induced graphene, which we can make on food, we can make on, on uh, coconuts, uh, Graphene nanoribbons, which I'm going to show you a little bit more about and how we're using those uh, um, in medicine now. We've made computer, <clears throat> excuse me, computer memories. This is now becoming useful in, uh, in a number of applications. This has become a public company now, and it's a two-terminal memory system. We work in this area <clears throat> also of nanomedicine. in this area of nanomedicine, traumatic brain injury and stroke in particular. And so uh, a company has just started around this as well. This is, uh, uh, we're working on a series of, of supercapacitor systems. This has gone into electric vehicles. This is a, a system which is actually now over 200% weight percent CO2 capture, uh, where we captured on asphalt. This is asphalt, the same thing that roads are made out of. We've learned how to make it into a very high surface area material. 4,200 meters square per gram uh, surface area. And uh, we're trapping CO2 from natural gas wells. This is the leg of a, a cockroach. We put it on a piece of uh, copper and we convert that into graphene. Graphene is a single atomic thick sheet of graphite. And we do that by heating this up to 1,000 degrees. We wanted to see if we could do it from negative value material. Think of what has negative value? So we figured a cockroach has negative value. Uh, we, we also did it with dog feces, converting it into graphene, which sells for, for uh, $200 per centimeter squared. And uh, uh, one cockroach leg could probably, uh, well, I, I haven't done the calculation, but a box of Girl Scout cookies we did the calculation on. If you take all the carbon in a box of Girl Scout cookies and convert it into graphene, that $4 box could be sold for 
$15 billion. So that shows you the value of material when you change it from, from one molecule type to another. This is graphene quantum dots. Graphene quantum dots, we make it from coal. Coal is $60 a ton. When we started this process, graphene quantum dots were costing uh, uh, $1 million per kilogram. So we make this from coal, which is $60 per ton in one step. And uh, this has been licensed to a company. We work a lot on, on, on uh, electrodes for batteries and supercapacitors. This is uh, graphene that is seamlessly stitched into carbon nanotubes. And this has been translated into a number of battery systems which are going to be commercialized in about a year from now. Uh, we work in this area of nanocars where we're able to build little motors into cars. And these cars are very small and these motors spin actually at 3 million rotations per second. And so they spin rather quickly. Uh, these cars are small enough that we can park about 50,000 of them across the diameter of a human hair. So they're very small. And, uh, uh, and, and with these, these fast rotating motors that activate by shining light, we're using the same motors to target certain cells, certain cell types, and drill holes in those cells. And we're going after a way to quickly destroy cancer cells that way, where we just drill right through the membrane of a cell. We have uh, uh, graphene oxide. We, we, we developed a procedure for graphene oxide, which is now used worldwide. And it's very good for capturing radio radioactive materials from water for water cleanup. It gives you a general overview of some of the areas that we work in. This is a rat. This rat has had its spinal cord completely cut in half at C5 at the base of the neck. And then we put one drop of graphene nanoribbons in, and the, there's immediate communication between the brain and the bottom of the body. And so now the brain is remapping the bottom of the body in the first week. And by, the, by two weeks after surgery, this rat is walking around with a completely cut in half spinal cord. And that's with one drop of a 1% solution of, of pegylated graphene nanoribbons. And at week two, he scored an 18 out of 21 on, on a mobility scale, 21 being, being a, a, a fully restored mobility. And now here, here he is after three weeks. Uh, uh, just, just ready to run, ready to go, and uh, uh, at this, this point he scored a, 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 a 19 out of 21 on a mobility scale with a completely cleaved spinal cord that had been remended with graphene nanoribbons. And so this is uh, a new company has started on this called NeuroCords, and uh, that's again to try to, uh, to rebuild spinal cords after, after accidents where, where you get a cut or a contusion in, in, in injury. So it gives you this small overview of some of the things that we work on in our group. So how did I become interested in chemistry? Several people have asked me that. Well, I wanted to be a New York State trooper. And so that's something that I, that I wanted to do since I was very young and I grew up wanting to become a New York State trooper. But, but I was colorblind, so I couldn't get into the academy. I don't know if, if, uh, if colorblindness still keeps one out of the academy, but at the time it did. And so I, I decided to study forensic science. At the time, Syracuse University didn't have a forensic science program. Now I hear that they do. But uh, uh, my dad said, well, instead of studying forensic science, why don't you, you, you study chemistry? And, and, uh, um, because that way you can study chemistry, just get a general degree in chemistry, and then you can specialize in forensics after that. And to my amazement, at the age of 17, I listened to my father's advice. And I started taking chemistry, and then I started learning about organic chemistry when I was a sophomore. 
And I absolutely loved it. I mean, to me, organic chemistry was, was just the greatest thing. And, and I understand that not everybody has that view. There's a diversity of views on organic chemistry, but they're usually, they're, they're usually digital. Either you love it or you don't. And, uh, and I was one of the, the few people that really loved it. So much so that you know these books, they're, they're like 1,200 pages and you go through it in two semesters. I would do, of course, all the assigned problems, but on Friday nights I would sit often in the, in the math building over there, what used to be the math building, and I'd, and I'd uh, just get an empty classroom because usually there were a lot of available classrooms on Friday nights. I don't know if that's still the case. And I'd sit there and I'd work all the problems that had not been assigned. That's how much I, I loved organic chemistry. And, I, and, and really organic synthesis is what interested me. And I saw molecular structure in everything. This is going to be important for the things that I'm going to communicate with you. I see molecular structure in everything. So in other words, I know why you can walk across a carpet and the fibers bend down and spring right back up. You can take a carpet fiber, pull it out. It has the diameter of about a human hair, but it'll stand up that far before it'll fall over. Why is that? What, what do they do with a carpet fiber that allows them to get that? What's happening at the molecular level? I know why that happens. I know why you can run your car into a tree and the tree is just fine and the car is destroyed. I know what the molecular structure is of the carbohydrate strands <clears throat> and how you have these, these proton, these hydrogen bond interactions that allow these molecules to deform and then spring right back. This makes sense when you start understanding molecular structure. So when you start seeing things at the molecular level, it can add a lot of enhancement to things. And this gets me into trouble sometimes because I'm looking at people. And as I'm looking at them, I'm thinking about the molecular interactions that are occurring in their eyes where, where you have a molecule when a photon hits it, it keeps, it keeps going from a, from a trans to a cis double bond and then you have an enzyme that springs it back. And that then confers to a, an electrical response in the brain so that there's this immediate electrical response. So, so if I hit the, the, the table here, you hear something. Well, you remember that I hit this. How do you remember? Well, there was an electrical response in your brain that happened very quickly. And now as we speak about it, it's going into protein synthesis. So proteins are being made in your brain as I remind you that I hit the counter here and it, and it made this sound. And then as you think about this more, tonight it's going to go into hardwired interconnect patterns in your brain. So as I'm speaking to people and looking in their eye, I'm thinking about this. And, and I listen less about the, what they're saying and I'm thinking more about the chemistry of what's happening in the brain as I'm talking to them. This is how much I love chemistry. I just think of, of these molecular interactions that are going on in everything that I see. Okay, so now I'm going to tell you the story of the good news of how I came to faith in Jesus Christ that happened just a couple hundred yards from here in the Lawrenson dormitory. So I was 1977, August 1977, I was doing laundry in the, it was in the basement of Lawrenson dormitory, it was the laundry room. Is it still there in the basement? Yeah? Okay. Well, I was doing, it was my first load of laundry and, and I was uh, talking to a guy in the laundry room and he played on the football team and I asked him if he wanted to play pro ball when he graduated. He says, oh no, I'm not good enough for that. I said, what do you want to do? He said, well, maybe lay ministry. And I said, what's lay ministry? He said, oh, like a missionary. I said, missionary? We don't need missionaries today. It's 1977. Why do we need missionaries? We got TV. You just put it in there with TV. Why do we need missionaries? He, he, and he said, can I give you an illustration of the gospel? I said, sure. 
And so he drew this on a piece of paper. He had people on one side, God on the other. And he had sin, this chasm of sin that was separating us from God. And then he opened up the Bible and he had me read this verse. This is the first verse that I remember reading from the Bible. I grew up in a Jewish home just outside of New York City. And, and uh, I don't ever remember reading, reading the Bible and, and uh, uh, certainly not understanding it. It says, <clears throat> Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I looked at him and I said, I'm not a sinner. And he said, you know, he was a bit taken back by that. And in modern secular Judaism, the background that I came from, we didn't think about sin very much. We didn't dwell on it. You can go to the synagogue once a year and, and, and uh, uh, on Yom Kippur and, and you're good to go. I never really thought much about this. And I said, look, how can I be a sinner? I never killed anyone and I never robbed a bank. So then he had me read another verse from the Bible. And it says in Matthew 5, 28, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now that really hit me. Not only was I 18 years old at the time, but I was addicted to pornography. I had become addicted to pornography at the age of 14. And I was working on the Hutchinson River Parkway and these gas stations going into and out of the city on each side of the road. And, and uh, my first job at the age of 14 was to clean the parking lots. And I noticed that the men would throw away their magazines on Friday nights on their way home from, from uh, their work week. And I picked up these magazines and I became quickly addicted. And when I read that verse, that was the first time in my life I was ever convicted of my sin. Everybody has something that convicts them of their sin. When I saw that I was convicted of my sin, this was a new experience for me and it really hit me. Then he had me read another verse from Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And I remember he drew this arrow. He said, people tried many good works to try to get them over to God, but it's never sufficient. The Bible says that our good works are not sufficient, won't get us to God. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I didn't even know that there was such a claim on the table. And he drew this cross that bridged this gap. And he had me read this, this verse. It says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. How can any thinking man or woman believe in a physical resurrection from the dead? I mean, we don't have a whole lot of data points on that. I've never seen that happen. How can you believe that? Unless God has placed it within the heart of every man and woman. And I'm amazed because I've shared this with many people over these last 40 years since I first heard this. And I'm amazed at the number of people that will say to me, I can believe Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. God has placed this amazing thing in the hearts of many people. Since then, I've studied the very resurrection and I have whole teachings on the physical resurrection. But that's not a topic for today. But he talked about how that could get me to God. And then it was on the night of November 7th, 1977, I was in that building. And you all know that building. That's Lawrence and Dormitory. And I was in room 1812. That's my room. And uh, uh, this was in November. Remember, he had shared with me in August. Now it's November. I had attended a little Bible study on the Gospel of John in, in the common room on that floor uh, for a few months. And I was all alone in that room. And I don't know what prompted me to do this, but I got down on my knees. I never saw Jews get down on their knees. Jews usually stand when we pray. Christians, I saw they, they would sit when they pray. And I got down on my knees and I said, Lord, 
forgive me because I'm a sinner and come into my heart. And then all of a sudden, this burden that I had been carrying, that I had been convicted of my sin, that I was a sinner, and I knew I couldn't get past this thing, it just started to lift from me. And then it was amazing how this feeling came over me, and then all of a sudden, this forgiveness, and all of a sudden, somebody was standing in my room. My roommate wasn't there, but someone was standing in my room, and I thought, how can this be? How can someone be standing in my room? And I looked, where is this person? And right in front of me, someone was standing. I couldn't see them with my eyes. But all of a sudden, this amazing sense of forgiveness came over me. A peace like I never wanted to get up. And I just started weeping like a baby, which was very unusual for me at the time. And I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to say. And I just enjoyed this presence. When I finally got up, I didn't tell anybody. What's this Jewish kid from New York City going to say? And uh, um, two weeks later, the guy who had shared with me, he lived on my floor, and he said, he said to me, Jim, have you received Jesus in your heart? I said, I, I think so. Why do you ask? He said, you haven't stopped smiling for weeks. Something's happened to you. I didn't realize it at that time, but I realized it sometime after that. The whole addiction that I had to pornography was gone. Just gone. That visitation on the day of salvation broke that in me. And if you've ever had an addiction... You know how compelling that can be in your life. He doesn't, he doesn't solve that in everybody's life. He did for me. He used it to convict me of my sin. He used me to show me his power. I had many other things that I had to strive with for many years and continue to strive with. But that one, he absolutely broke in me. And then I was really blessed to be discipled by several great men. One was Dr. T.E. Koshi from, from uh, International Assembly. He was the evangelical chaplain here. And he was the man who taught me to read the Bible. He used to say, you read the Bible from, <clears throat> excuse me, from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation. So that's what I started doing. So for almost 40 years, <clears throat> I've had this pattern of reading the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation over and over again. So I start in Genesis chapter 1, and I just pick up where I leave off, left off the day before. And then when I hit <clears throat> Revelation chapter 22, I start again. And uh, I've had this pattern, and he learned it from Brother Bak Singh, who taught me the same thing. And then there was, <clears throat> when I was in graduate school, Professor Delmar Brosma, who is a professor of uh, entomology, who was also the pastor of the local church that I was in, and Professor uh, Buck Hatch, from, who was at Columbia Bible College at the time when we lived in South Carolina. I spent my first 11 years teaching at the University of South Carolina before I moved to Rice. So I've had great men speaking in my life. That's my Christian story. <clears throat> That's my family. God has blessed me with a beautiful family. This is my daughter, Ambreen. She lives in Israel for the past 12 years. She's a mediator between Palestinians and Israelis, fluent in Hebrew and Arabic. This is her husband, Philip. And these are their two kids, my two grandchildren. This is my daughter, Sabrina. She's a lawyer in Houston. My son, Josiah, he's in, in medical school in New York City. And Ben is an investment banker. He graduated from Rice last May. He's an investment banker with J.P. Morgan uh, in the energy sector in Houston. And so, you know, I, I just look at this and, you know, every good Jewish family needs a doctor, a lawyer, and a banker. So I figure, <laughs> I figure we're pretty well set here. Um, and I know what you're thinking. I know what every guy in here is thinking. How did I get such a beautiful wife? I, I think about this too, all the time. I can't believe that she married me. I think she, she thought I was really rich or that I was going to become really rich. She didn't know that I was only going to make nano dollars. I mean, it just... But anyway, she, she, she's a wonderful lady. And God really blessed me. I prayed a lot. I, I would 
break every day at noontime, I would go up to Hendricks Chapel and I'd go all the way up to the top of the stairwell and I would pray. One of my prayers was that the Lord would bring me a, 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 a great spouse. And he really did. In fact, I didn't realize even at the time that we got married what a treasure she was. We've been married 36 years now. <clears throat> now, now we do the change. Now I'm just going to speak on the origin of life and evolution. This is a technical lecture. With intent, no God, gods, or intelligent designer will be mentioned. Science will be used to critique scientific research. That's it. I'm going to transition now and just show you what can be done with science. And we're going to discuss uh, uh, origin of life and evolution. <clears throat> I've written on origin of life before. I've written on, uh, it's called Enemid Versions of a Synthetic Chemist. That is supposed to be me. You agree to write for this journal and, and they take a picture of you that they get off the internet and they give it to some deranged artist and that's what they reproduce. And... Uh, um, so if you read that, if you were to just Google my name, James Tour, and inference, <clears throat> these articles would pop up. It's an online journal. It, 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 it's an open source journal, so, so it's free. You can, you can uh, read it right there online. And I talk about the, how hard it is to make the chemicals that are needed for life. You've got to be able to make these four classes of chemicals. You have to be able to make carbohydrates, lipids, nucleic acids, and proteins. You need those four chemicals. And how hard it is to make those, in, and, and uh, even in the racemic form, how hard it is, but certainly in their homochiral form. So <clears throat> that's a long article. If, if you're a chemist, you'd probably love it if you're a synthetic chemist. If you're not a synthetic chemist, you can read the beginning and the end, but the middle, if you're ever suffering from insomnia, it would be a great article to pick up. I've written another shorter article that's a much easier read which was an open letter to my colleagues. This published a, a few years ago, uh, a few months ago, just about six months ago, where I talked about how hard it is if you had all the chemicals of life to construct a cell. How would you construct a cell? How would you be able to construct a cell? How would you be able to do this? How do these things come together? Because you have to build a cell in order to, to have life. And the simplest cell requires 256 protein coding genes. How would you construct such a thing? And so I just build those arguments there. So a lot of what I'm saying today you can get from those two articles. But also I'm going to be coming out with another article in a few months which summarizes a lot of the things that I will say today as well. So what is the origin of life? So this is a cell. A cell is an absolute factory. <clears throat> a cell, so much is taking place. It is not just a blob of protoplasm. So, for example, you go into a factory today and you look in a factory <clears throat> and you want to say, how do they pick up some material, and they move it from this part of the factory to that part of the factory. How's that done? And you'll see many overhead conveyor belts with baskets of machine parts riding in them from one side to the other. Cell does the same thing. It wants to transfer something from point A to point B. It builds a tubule, <clears throat> builds it, and then materials get transferred along that tubule, and then you know what it does? It deconstructs the tubule and then reconstructs it in another part of the cell that needs to transfer materials. You say, why does it do that? Because if it left that tubule in place, the cell would become too rigid and couldn't live. So it deconstructs and reconstructs. It's an amazing machine. You have these mitochondria, which are these powerhouses that, of the cell that just drive this cell along. It has this lipid bilayer. We're just going to look at the simplest of the structures, the lipid bilayer, this outer coating that many people say, well, a cell is just a lipid bilayer with some things inside. Okay, you want to say you can make the lipid bilayer? We'll just look at the lipid bilayer. What is the origin of life? So 
I think origin of life research is retarded. And when I say retarded, that just means slowed. You think of it what you want, but by retarded, I just mean slowed. Origin of life research is a retarded field of science. Little has advanced in the field since the highly touted 1952 Miller-Urey experiment. After two-thirds of a century, the world is no closer to generating life from small molecules, or any molecules for that matter, than it was in 1952. One could argue that origin of life research is even more befuddled now than it was in 1952 since more questions have evolved than answers. Since we understand much more about the cell, it's made us realize that we're further from having a cell. Consider what's happened in the last 66 years, two-thirds of a century, since the Miller-Urey experiment in other fields. We have human space travel, satellite interconnectivity, DNA's, DNA's code, and the ability to precisely manipulate the G DNA sequence. We can even now pull out single bases and replace them, as well as strings of bases. <clears throat> All of silicon technology, integrated circuits, the internet, that name's just a few in the last two-thirds of a century. What's happened in origin of life research? Nothing. No advances have occurred in origin of life research that have taken us any closer to understanding how life was made. If anybody tells you that scientists understand how life was made, they are lying or they are ignorant. They just don't know. And I'll show you that today. By the way, how many people in here are synthetic organic chemists? Organic chemists. How many organic chemists in here? Okay, so we have one professor here. We have a graduate student. And there, was a, there must be another graduate student. Another one. He told me he was going to come. Where's that other graduate student? Did he not show up? He told me he was going to... Well, anyway, we got two organic chemists here. If I say anything that's not true, just raise your hand or shout it out that I'm lying. You guys got to... Hold me accountable here to make sure that I don't tell something to these people that is not true regarding chemistry, okay? So, chemistry itself is utterly indifferent to whether anything is alive or not. Organisms care about having nucleic acids, carbohydrates, proteins, and lipids, the four classes of chemicals needed for life, along with redox potentials across membranes and metabolic pathways, standing in exquisite yet ill-defined non-equilibrium states that we call life. While organisms exploit chemistry for their own ends, it is erroneous to expect chemicals to assemble themselves into an organism. Origin of life research keeps attempting to make chemicals needed for life and then to have those assemble towards something for which they are inherently indifferent. We explore here two main classes of origin of life science. First, the prebiotic-like chemicals, the synthesis of the molecules that constitute the, the four frameworks of life, carbohydrates, amino acids, lipids, and nucleic acids. Then the second thing we'll look at is, is how we deal with assembly. How does origin of life research deal with assembly of those into vesicles that they call protocells? Every chemical synthesis experiment, chemical synthesis experiment in origin of life research can be summed up by this protocol, something analogous to this. You purchase some chemicals generally in high purity from a chemical company. You mix those chemicals together in water in high concentrations in, or, in a specific order under some set of carefully devised conditions in a modern laboratory. You obtain a mixture of compounds that have a resemblance to one or more of the basic four classes of chemicals needed for life carbohydrates, nucleic acids, amino acids, or lipids. 
Then you publish a paper making bold assertions about origin of life from those functionless crude mixtures of stereoscrambled intermediates, much like Miller did in 1952. Then you engage with the ever-gullible press to dial up the knob of unjustified extrapolation. Then you watch the mesmerized layperson exclaim, you see, scientists understand how life formed. Then you encourage a generation of science textbook writers to make colorful, deceptive cartoons of raw chemicals assembling into cells, which then emerge as slithering creatures from a prehistoric pond. Everything can be summed up in that, some permutation of that. But scientists do not understand anything more about life's origin than they did before they performed their experiments, because there is no solution to the fundamental questions needed for the path to life. So how can the papers be published? Well, because origin of life researchers serve as the unbiased reviewers of each other's papers, and <clears throat> and the <clears throat> excuse me, and the uh, the uh, the editors have become numb to all of this. <clears throat> they've seen this over and over again, but they they become numb to it. So you go two thirds of a century with little change in origin of life, and yet other fields make quantum steps leaps ahead for humankind. Here's a brief listing of some of the hurdles which need to be considered when dealing with chemical synthesis experiments common to all origin of life protocols that are being published. Organic chemists understand this. Professor, you will understand this. You will understand what I'm talking about. <clears throat> Molecules that compose living, system, almost, living systems almost always show homochirality. That means you have one, hand, one mirror image over the other. Nobody has ever offered a demonstrative solution. And if this can be done sufficiently well in a mindless prebiotic cesspool, why cannot the experts in origin of life research replicate it in 66 years of trying while using their sophisticated modes of synthetic ingenuity? When building molecular systems, constant redesigns are needed which take the synthesis back to step, step one. It's often impossible to remove a moiety once it's been added to a molecule. So in other words, say you're going along and you want to build a cell. Now remember, this is nature which is mindless, has no brain. It's going along and uh-oh, it added a methyl group here when it never should have. Oh, well, I'll just take that methyl group off. You can't. Sometimes it's very hard to take that methyl group off. You add the thing on, you can't get it off. Synthetic chemists today don't know how to get it off. So how's mindless nature? You say, well, an enzyme did it. No, remember, this is pre-enzyme. This is prebiotic. There are no enzymes. We have to make all of this, ab initio, from scratch. That's what prebiotic means. The synthetic reactions do not know how to stop their current course of progression or why to stop. The prebiotic system will continue to make derivatives. You say, ah, I've got the nucleic acid. I'll stop there. I'll take it. I'll put it in the freezer and wait for the next thing that I have to do with it. No, nature doesn't have that advantage. If it made something, it doesn't. You're going to continue to react. Time, although claimed to be the great savior of abiogenesis, can actually be the enemy. For example, carbohydrates are kinetic products. They, there's caramelization, meaning they polymerize. Or the Kenazera reaction takes place, where you get, you, you get <clears throat> formaldehyde will oxidize to carbonic acid while, while, while the aldehyde of the sugar you've just made gets reduced to the alcohol. So in other words, time is the enemy of organic chemists. What do organic chemists do? They make something, they right away want to work it up, and they put it in the freezer and wait for it to be in the next step. Why? Because it goes bad. And remember, these things are going to have to wait around for thousands or millions of years in order for the next step to take place. And they're not in a freezer, isolated from, 
from, from, from all the elements. When you're making a kinetic product, time is not an advantage, it's an enemy. A prebiotic system does not have the ability to easily purify the structures. Sometimes selective crystallization can occur with designed input of a synthetic chemist, but most often, not even then. It's hard to purify things. When you don't purify things, what happens is the impure compounds take up the precious starting materials and you get a mess after a few steps of propagating batches of impure material. That's why chemists work very hard to purify. In fact, it usually takes longer to purify a reaction than it does to run the reaction. Reagent order is critical. What if I said, let's bake a cake today? And so we'll, uh, we'll take the icing and we'll mix it in with the eggs. No, 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 no. The icing has to go last. Well, what's the difference? It all gets in there at the same time. No, we understand. That doesn't work. Organic chemistry is very specific. If you don't add things in the right order, it just doesn't work. The parameters of temperature, pressure, solvent, light or no light, pH, atmospheric gases or no gases, all of that has to be addressed. There has to be careful structure to all of this synthetic chemistry. No explanation is offered in Origin of Life research. The characterization at each step is essential for the chemist. We will spend sometimes vast amounts of time trying to characterize our material because if you have the wrong structure as an intermediate, then you're carrying on a wrong structure. It's going to mess up everything down the line. Well, how does nature characterize anything? It doesn't. In natural biological systems, everything is characterized. Everything is made and an enzyme comes down and checks if it's the right thing. If it's not, it has ways to degrade that. But in a prebiotic system, before there's an enzymatic world, there's no way to get rid of these things. There's, there's no way to characterize what materials are. You can spend months characterizing a complex molecule. The mass transfer problem is it's just... The mass transfer problem will be the killer of all roots. How does one bring sufficient material through a complex multi-step synthesis? There's no accountability of mass transfer from going from one paper to the next. A prebiotic world would never have such a luxury. Nature never keeps a laboratory notebook. You say, well, you know, I'm going along, I'm, I'm, I'm almost at the carbohydrate structure that I want, but I've run out of starting material. Well, what do you do in a lab? You go back and you make some more and you bring up more, called bringing up more material from the rear. Well, what happens in nature? Once you bring up more material, it's like, uh, it just cost me 400 million years to get to this point. And I'd like to go back and make some more, but I forgot to keep a laboratory notebook. I don't know how I did that. It has no idea how to go back and make more. You try to go through a 30-step synthesis of making something without going back to the beginning and starting again. What kind of tonnage of material you need to go through multi-steps in a mindless prebiotic environment? All of those are problems. Professor, aren't those problems? It's hard to do, isn't it? All right. Origin of life synthesis is still Miller-Urey-like, where you, you, you just make a bunch of compounds and you claim you've done something except that the research days put far more precision into the protocols to make more elaborate arrays of stereo-scrambled intermediates. One could easily argue, therefore, that the researchers are moving further from the heart of abiogenesis since they are filling the protocols with the best of their intellectual training to coax molecules into the form that the researcher desires. And even with all that intellectual input, origin of life researchers overcome few, if any, of the barriers noted on the last page. At least Miller-Urey took some simple compounds, passed them across a, a large voltage gap, and saw some scrambled amino acids. At least that was simple stuff going on in there. 
Now the really elaborate experiments, and still they get very little. This explains the retarded state of origin of life research. When the obvious problems are unaddressed, the researchers will continue down the wrong road while other fields progress toward the benefit of humanity. In addition to the chemical synthesis that does not trans traverse the hurdles, there's a second part. It's how do you assemble these? How do you assemble structures? So even if I gave you all the chemicals, say you had them all, all of these four classes of compounds, how do you assemble that? There's very few people in the world that actually do organic synthesis and they'll then take those compounds that they've assembled and build it into a higher, work, higher order working structure. It's generally people with an organic synthesis background that work in an area of nanotechnology and the number of people is nano size. It's very few. But we realize how hard it is to build a working system. How do you put these molecules together to do something functional? They will call this a protocell. A protocell by definition, Wikipedia definition, is a protocell is a self-organized, endogenously ordered, spherical collection of lipids proposed as a stepping stone to the origin of life. So some people say if you can get the lipid, then you're part of the way there. Well, remember, a lot of these things just automatically self-assemble, but is that, that, that uh, liposome that's been made, is that really like a cellular lipid bilayer? We'll take a look. Most so-called protocell assembly experiments in origin of life research can be summed up by a protocol like this. You purchase homochiral diacetyl lipids from a chemical company or you synthesize stereoscrambled lipids from smaller molecules. Add those lipids <coughs> to water <coughs> and observe the simple and expected thermodynamically driven assembly of those lipids into a synthetic bilayer vesicle upon agitation. Then often it has to actually go through shear in order to make the vesicles. Sometimes the researchers will add other molecules like nucleotides that get engulfed by the vesicle as it forms. You publish a paper claiming that synthetic vesicle is a protocell and suggestive of early forms of cellular life, engage with the media, watch the layperson be misled. I'm going to read to you from a 2017 article from Harvard University where they, from the Origin of Life Institute there. <clears throat> and and, and, uh, and, and here, here's what it says. Here's a recent example where they're, where they're trying to construct a cell, or just have something to do with the construction of a cell. In 2017, researchers from Origin of Life Initiative at Harvard University performed a known type of polymerization reaction in water called reversible addition fragmentation chain transfer, RAFT, which is not seen in nature. It's a purely synthetic reaction. The monomers were all synthetic and unnatural. This is standard chemistry used to make polymers wherein there's a controlled radical polymerization reaction that can afford a polymer chain bearing a hydrophobic block attached to a hydrophilic block when two different monomer types are used. The researchers observed these to form polymeric vesicles during the polymerization, which is expected, nothing new here. While they kept the radical chain growing through ultraviolet light activation, which is a typical activation source, the vesicle grew, consuming monomer within the vesicle to the point where the vesicle will burst. Again, nothing surprising here. A critical vesicle size is reached, then the forces between the growing vesicle and the surrounding water dictate a critical growth volume before competing forces, forces cause vesicle rupture. The vesicle moves toward the ultraviolet light, likely because of heat gradients induced by the light source of reaction thermodynamics. Chemists like myself find this interesting. None of you find this interesting. I find this interesting. That's interesting. Should have stopped there. Here's what they wrote in the article. 
Quote, the observed net oscillatory vesicle population grows in a manner that reminds one of some elementary modes of sustainable, while there is food, population growth seen among living systems. The data support an interpretation in terms of microscale self-assembled molecular systems capable of embodying and mimicking some aspects of simple extant life including self-assembly from a homogeneous but active chemical medium, membrane formation, metabolism, a primitive form of self-replication, and hints of elementary system selection due to a spontaneous light trigger, triggered by Marigoni instability, which is surface tension gradients. <clears throat> that is a wild statement based on what they did. How was this permitted? Where were the reviewers? Where was the editor? Just because A reminds one of B does not make A a simple form of B. If those little vesicles remind me of flying saucers, it doesn't make them simple or extant flying saucers. The Harvard Gazette then writes an article on this. Uh, quote, a Harvard researcher seeking a model for the earliest cells has created a system that self-assembles from a chemical soup into cell-like structures that grow, move in response to light, replicate, and exhibit signs of rudimentary evolutionary selection. Huh? How is that claim? But nothing of the sort was accomplished in this experiment. The public is deceived. Has the Origin of Life initiative at Harvard fulfilled its mission for the year's requisite publication number? Here's a listing of a few challenges that need to be addressed when dealing with just the lipid bilayer assembly experiments common to most Origin of Life protocols that are being published. Researchers have identified thousands of lipid structures in modern cell membranes. It's not homogeneous. When making cell vesicles, synthetic lipid bilayer membranes, mixtures of monoacial lipids can destabilize the system. So how are these avoided in nature? Nobody knows. Lipid bilayers surround subcellular organelles, such as nuclei and mitochondria, which are themselves microsystem assemblies. Each of these has their own lipid composition, <clears throat> different from the host vesicle. Lipid bilayers have a non-symmetric distribution between the inner and the outer surface. We don't know how to do that in a laboratory. We have no idea how to do that. None of their protocells show that. Without that being done, the cell, it's not a cell. Protein lipid complexes are required passive transport sites and active pumps for the passage of ions and molecules through the bilayer membrane, often with high specificity. All lipid bilayers have vast numbers of polycarbohydrate appendages, known as glycans. These are essential for cell regulation. For example, just six repeat units of the carbohydrate dipyranose can form more than one trillion different hexamers through branching, which is constitutional, and glycosidic, which is stereochemical diversity. And these branching patterns store more information about the state of the cell than both DNA and RNA combined. You can have more combinations just from the glycan of information stored in those structures than you can in all of DNA and RNA. Every cell membrane is coated by the complex array of polysaccharides. And all cell-to-cell -cell interactions take place through carbohydrate participation on the lipid bilayer membrane surface. Eliminating any class of carbohydrates from an organism results in its death. So how do or origin of life researchers address the prebiotic synthesis of complex lipid bilayers? They don't. Yet they claim a protocell, and origin of life research remains retarded. Interactomes. There is, there is an interaction that occurs between molecules within a cell. This is not my estimation. This is this work that comes out of uh, University of Brussels and Johns Hopkins University. 
good schools. They estimate that just the protein-protein interactions, just how the way protein-proteins interact, the number of possible combinations between just the proteins in a single yeast cell has 10 to the 79 billion combinations. 10 to 79 billion combinations. <clears throat> so that's a number one followed by 79 billion zeros. That's a big number. The number of elemental particles in the universe, in the entire universe, is 10 to the 90. This is 10 to the 79 billion. That's the number of possible combinations. So what do the authors write? The numbers preclude formation of a functional interactome by trial and error complex formation within any meaningful span of time. Thus, a complicated cellular sorting, trafficking, and assembly system made up of membranous organelles, receptors, membrane translocation devices, cytoskeleton tracts, motor proteins, and accessory chaperone guides the proper compartmentalization, localization, and assembly of proteins in the cell. So what they're doing is they're saying there's all of this framework that helps them to assemble. You can't just throw stuff in to a... Even if you had the membrane, even if you had the lipid bilayer, you're just going to throw all the chemicals in and say, hey, there's a cell. No. There's, you need a whole framework to allow it to arrange. He says, in, in the absence of energy, even this well-developed infrastructure would be insufficient to account for the generation of the interactome, which requires a continuous expenditure of energy to maintain steady state. The ability to synthesize an actual artificial cell using design components that can self-assemble spontaneously still remains a distant challenge. That's what they write. People will say, you've heard of the artificial cell. <clears throat> Let me tell you what that group did, they, which they never even called an artificial cell. It was other people. They took a functioning cell. They took the genome out of that cell and they synthesized their own genome, which was similar to the genome that goes in the, and they put it into that cell. So if I take the car, the, the engine out of a Ford and I put it into a Chevrolet, can I go saying, I made, I discovered how to make a car? No, you just took the engine out of one car and put it in another. That's exactly what they did. And in fact, it wasn't even the engine, it was just the control box, the little computer control box. That's what they, they put in. <clears throat> that's, what it, that's what the artificial experiment was. It was not making all the, the structure of a cell. Now, we come to the greatest problem, the origin of information. Critical for life is the origin of information, DNA or RNA. The information is primary and the matter is secondary. To this point, we've only discussed matter the material in which the cell is built. But where did the information come from? You can't have it from, an, from a, a random array of nucleic acids. You have to have an information code. We can't even get to the matter, let alone the information. Nobody has any idea where the information code came from. Nobody. You can say it came from outer space. That's fine. But we're talking about origin of first life. So that just begs the question. How did it get into outer space? Where did that first come from? The origin of information predates even all of what you're going to be able to do with the matter itself. Information is more primary than the matter on which it's written. Just like I can store something on a piece of paper by writing it down. I translate that into my computer. Now it's stored in a separate place. Then I send it wirelessly through the Wi-Fi system and it's going through the air in, a, in, a, in, a, in an RF wave. And now it's stored in another place. And then it goes through there through a wire in another way of information. And then it goes to a server farm into flash memory and a deep trench capacitor in a, in a, in a server farm. It's had many different ways that the information has been stored, mediums upon which it has been stored. But where did the information come from? 
That's primary. Origin of life never addresses this. This is foundational. Origin of life. So say you assembled a dream team and I gave you, I, I gave you all the chemicals you need for, for a living cell, all in homochiral form and the informational code. Say I even gave you DNA and RNA and all the arrangements you want. Could you build a cell? The answer is no. I have no way to. I don't know how to pack that stuff in there. They interact. I have no way. They can't make a cell. The mystery of the origin of first life does not permit the opening of the door on bio biological level evolution. It's difficult to discuss biology without life. I gave a talk on this at the University of Waterloo two years ago. If you just Google James Tour origin of life, it'll, it'll come up. <clears throat> and you can see where I just took people through the gory detail of just making the molecules, not even the information. All right, father time and turkeys. When all else fails for explanation, origin of life researchers call upon father time hundreds of millions of years to somehow solve their mysteries. It is fallacious, akin to buying 20 pounds of sliced turkey meat, adding a gallon of turkey broth, warming, sticking in a few feathers, and suggesting that a live turkey will eventually come gobbling out if given enough time, or that a proto-turkey or extant turkey had been synthesized. And the research plods to that end, and researchers delude themselves. Even professors in universities, I've seen biology professors in universities not even understand the difference between evolution and origin of life. Origin of life predates anything of evolution, and you have to have that before you can even discuss evolution. <clears throat> the problem is fool's gold. There were alchemists that were trying to take inexpensive metals and make gold. And what they learned is if you had sulfur, to certain inexpensive metals, the metals become yellow. You add more sulfur, you can get it sometimes looking goldish. You take iron and you add sulfur to it, you get pyrite. Looks like gold. But they knew they didn't have gold because it didn't have the same melting point, didn't have the same conductivity, didn't have the same ductility. But would not the alchemist community have thought to themselves, well, at least we're on the right track? You're not going to ever get there by adding sulfur to other metals. You're never going to make gold. The only way you get one element to turn into gold that's not gold is you've got to change the proton count. And then you need some sort of nuclear process which is a lot more expensive than the gold itself. So just because you think that, hey, come on, leave us alone, we must be on the right track. No, you may be totally off the track. It's not going to get you there. <clears throat> So, origin of life community is traveling down a broad road that leads not to the city of life. Along this highway, one generation of researchers after another is destined to validate their own end of life long before they'll explain the origin of life. We cannot command nature except by obeying her, says Francis Bacon. Nature gives us clues, and when we ignore those clues, we suppress the truth. Truth suppression leads to intellectual darkening, and the outcome is precisely what we have seen. Origin of life research retards. Even professors are misled. So I'm calling for a moratorium on origin of life research until we can address fundamentals like what's the origin of life's code? What's the route to complex interactomes? How, how do we get these to form? What's the mass throughput in synthesis? How do you go from beginning to end by bringing up enough materials? Or else <clears throat> they have to give us some conjecture as to why these are not necessary for origin of life. So somehow we've got to step back, and I'm not calling for a cessation, but a moratorium. Just stop for a minute, and let's do a reassessment. What about 
evolution and the frustration of evolutionists toward me. Well, in 2001, I signed a statement. So now we're moving from origin of life to evolution. All right? Now we're on evolution. We've got life, biology. <clears throat> I signed a statement in 2001 and said, we're skeptical of the claims for the ability of random mutation and natural selection to account for the complexity of life. Careful examination of the evidence for Darwinian theory should be encouraged. That's it. It was sent to me in an email in around 2001. I said, yeah, I can agree to that. I had no idea that in 2005 that would become the touchstone of a court case, and I hate court cases. This statement has become known as a scientific dissent from Darwinism statement. So it has its own name now. But uh, all we're saying <clears throat> is that random mutation and natural selection, it doesn't to us appear to be able to account for the complexity of life. We never said you shouldn't work on it. We just said careful examination should be encouraged. What area would you say, no, no, don't work on that anymore? Well, that got a lot of people upset. So in 2016, <clears throat> I set out on a personal mission to engage with biologists, philosophers of science, mathematicians, and geneticists in order to better understand evolution. Here are some of the things that I learned. They tell me that Darwinian theory has already been debunked by biologists, that many biologists suggest that random mutation and natural selection have long been recognized by many evolutionists themselves to be insufficient to account for the complexity of life. Neutral drift, which is just the changes that occur between me and my children, the natural changes in DNA between me and my children. Neutral drift is quantitatively more important than natural selection in understanding genetic differences between organisms. Furthermore, the mechanisms of evolution and their relative importance are continuously subject to careful scientific examination and revision. So careful examination of the evidence has not been avoided. Okay, if that's the case, so why don't you all sign the dissent statement with me? You agree with me then. Why are you so upset that I signed it? Here's what they say. I'm quoting them. Evolution is both about the mechanisms by which change occurs over time and the theory of universal common descent. The mechanism by which change occurs and the theory of universal common descent. That's what evolution is about today. It's no longer that Darwinian evolution that I spoke about. This is what they talk about today. Any biologists in here? Okay, good. I, so, so I can understand why those fluent in the field of genetics would be convinced by the theory, if universal, of, of the, by the theory this should be of universal common descent. There's an impressive, impressive quantity and insightfulness to that work. If you look at this theory of universal common descent, it is an amazing theory. There is a lot going for it. It is a very well-developed theory with a lot of evidence supporting its case. But let me interject something on this. Commonness, common descent versus uncommonness. Humans have about 20,000 protein-coding genes. So on our DNA, we have about 20,000 segments that will build that will be the code for the building of the, the enzymes that build our body. Which is, but that's only 1.5% of DNA in the entire genome. And it's in, within that 1.5% that common descent studies are primarily, though not exclusively, focused. So in other words, all of universal common descent is built around 1.5% of the DNA. So when they say we are 99.9% .9 the same as a chimpanzee, that is correct. Our, 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 our genome is. When you look at 1.5% of our DNA, that's what that means. So, 
a large-scale projected project instituted in 2003 by the U.S. National Human Genome Research Institute, which, by the way, is not a religious organization at all, called the Encyclopedia of DNA Elements, ENCODE, seeks to determine the role of the remaining 98.5% of the genome that was formerly called junk DNA, but better called intergenic regions. There is ENCODE evidence that part or even much of the intergenic regions have regulatory elements that can affect gene transcription. That's the building of RNA that constructs the enzymes that regulate or build a biological system. So the uncommonness is noted in the intergenic regions, not the common 1.5% protein coding regions. When you look at the 1.5% region, the theory of universal common descent is an extraordinary theory. We're looking now at the other 98.5%. <clears throat> also, work on orphan genes, also called ORFNs, <clears throat> casts new light on the uniqueness of some genetic information. Orphan genes are considered unique to a narrow taxon, generally a species. Therefore, orphan genes are markers for uncommonness. When I first started researching uh, this in 2016, just two years ago, some of the geneticists said, yeah, 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 ENCODE, orphan genes, we're only talking about a few hundred regulatory elements. Now in two years, it's swelled to several thousand regulatory elements in this intergenic region. And it's growing all the time. So it's becoming harder and harder to dismiss this now. Humans alone have capacity for art, music, advanced communication, advanced mathematics, and religious practice which constitute the broader organization of symbolism. Therefore, if one is intent upon a common descent model, then there was a massive and presently unexplainable infusion, which was either intrinsic or extrinsic, along the proposed very short descent pathway between Australopithecines and modern humans. So there was, that was the, the, one, the, the group just above us in this common descent scenario. Something happened between them and us where all of this symbolism came into our lives. If it were an intrinsic infusion, then the requisite anatomical or chemical differences between modern human brain and other hominid brains are presently indiscernible and unfathomable. And the chemical basis of evolutionary mechanisms for such changes is both unknown and presently immeasurable. If the infusion were extrinsic, then the materialist evolutionist and the supernaturalist share a common ground. The mechanism problem. A body plan, this is just taken right off of Wikipedia. A quote, a body plan or ground plan is an assemblage of morphological features shared among many members of a phylum level group. This term usually applied to animals envisages a blueprint encompassing aspects such as symmetry, segmentation, and limb deposition. Body plans have historically been considered to have evolved in a flash in the Cambrian explosion but our more nuanced understanding of the animal evolution suggests the gradual development of body plans throughout the early Paleozoic. So nobody can fathom the mechanisms for body plan changes. Nobody knows how body plans have changed. There's no mechanism. Remember, evolution is about the mechanism of change. Nobody knows how these mechanisms have changed. I don't like to use the term macroevolution because macroevolution can be different in what different people call it. Uh, uh, if you want to say you, you, you change one species into another, there are examples of that occurring. Some plants sometimes will, will spontaneously, for some unknown reason, double their DNA. So you have a new species. 
So if you want to say macroevolution has never shown doubling, uh, never shown a new species, that's not entirely correct. But what's never been shown is how a body plan changes, which is the differences between us and dogs and tigers and, 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 and monkeys. I mean, the mechanism for the change is unknown. A massive functional change of a body part would require multiple concerted lines of variation. Sure, one can suggest multiple small changes ad infinitum, but the concerted requirement of multiple changes all in the same place and at the same time is impossible to chemically fathom. One day the requisite chemical basis might become apparent so that the questions can be answered, but present-day biology is far from providing even chemical proposals for this functional change, let alone a data-substantiated chemical mechanism. What biologists will often give to me is they'll give me, here is the immune system. Look at how the immune system evolves. And I'll concede. You want to call this evolving? It is evolving. Look at how the immune system does this. It is, all of a sudden, it's, it, it's confronted with something new, and it will morph and change. But my argument is, it has always remained an immune system. It didn't become a digestive system. It didn't become an auditory system. The system remains the same. Yes, you have changes within the system, but you never see jumping across, nor can you propose how it even might do that. I'm not even asking you, I said, I'm not even asking you to show me how it's done, how you would change an immune system into some other system. Just show me how, what is the proposal for that. Nothing. Remember, it's about the mechanism of change. That's their own words. Collective cluelessness. Therefore, I don't understand the mechanisms needed to change body plans or the mechanisms along the descent pathway between Australopithecine brain and the modern human brain. If we are indeed commonly descended as predicted by the theory of universal common descent. And nobody else understands the mechanisms either. Nobody! But unlike most, I'm saying it publicly. Collective cluelessness. Recall quoting the biologists. Evolution is both about the mechanisms by which change occurs over time and the theory of universal common descent. The mechanisms are unknown and the theory of universal common descent, though robust, is being confronted by evidence that can be interpreted as uncommonist through ENCODE and orphan genes. And it's massively changing every month. There are hundreds being added to this list. So, what, is, what do I say? Further study is warranted. That's it. I can't disprove theory of evolution. I can't disprove universal common descent. I don't want to disprove it. All I can say is, it is a theory that deserves further study. But to go and to project it as if we are clear on this and it is fact is wrong. It is a lie to do that. It is a lie. It is a lie to project to people that we understand the formation of life. It is a lie because we don't. We are absolutely clueless on the origin of life. And on universal common descent, it is a fantastic theory worthy of further research. But it is not a fact. And it should not be projected as such because what happens is when we as scientists lie to the general public... They disbelieve us not just on that lie, but on many other things that we tell them. And that's why there is such, in my view, chasm between the general public, 100 million people in this country that aren't buying into evolutionary theory and 100 other million people saying, why are those first 100 million so stupid not to believe this? We have so much fact around. Because you lie to them. 
because you project it as something that it's not. If you projected this, this is our theory. This is the best we've got going right now. There are some real holes that we don't understand. Then that's okay. But when you project it to them as fact, and if they don't buy it, they are stupid for not buying it, then you're going to have this chasm remain, and they're going to distrust you not just on this, but on many things across the areas of science. The end. Thank you. Sounds good. Okay. All right. All right. Can, can I ask the first question, Pro Professor? Did did I did I deceive people on the difficulties of chemistry? Okay. His answer was no. And uh, do, do you have any further comment on that? It's a tough business. Synthetic chemistry is a tough business, and when you're in a mindless prebiotic environment, it's even tougher. Uh, we have our modern laboratories, and uh, it's much harder to do this under a rock. Okay, questions. So, so the question was, was on time frames. I had said that, that time, just long times, is, is not a solution. Because what happens when you're, when you're making organic compounds, so say, say you've made the compound you, you, you really need for life now. It doesn't stay around. It goes bad. These are kinetic products, meaning that they are not the thermodynamically most stable product along the chain here. And that's particularly true with, with the carbohydrates. Carbohydra carbohydrates, a five-member ring carbohydrate is needed to string together all of RNA and DNA. It makes a five-member ring. And, and, uh, uh, um, and, and, and then you need other six-member ring carbohydrates for, for other systems. And so... These don't stay there. So this is a problem even in a modern laboratory. You will find people who work in origin of life research, they will put this under a certain set of reaction conditions, and then they will work up the reaction very quickly because they know if they leave this and they go home for the weekend, the yield goes way down. And so I have cited this in, in the first article that I wrote on uh, the animate versions of a synthetic chemist, is that, is that I showed from the data itself, from their own data, when they let the, the reaction go for four months or six months, how the yield depressed by 12%. Well, remember, four or six months is the twinkling of an eye in prebiotic time spans. And so that means that after a few years, there's nothing left. So what happens is to just say time solves this, it doesn't solve it. And that's why I gave that turkey example. I think that you would agree that if you had turkey meat and turkey broth and some feathers, and you let it sit for five minutes, a turkey isn't going to jump out, right? And then if you let it sit for five years, probably a turkey is not going to jump out. Even, and, and, and how, how can we say that? Because we look at the progression of what is happening over the time scale in which we can measure. So over five minutes, we didn't see anything useful occurring. Over five years, we actually saw deleterious reactions occurring. We saw those proteins breaking down even further. So then we extrapolate that out over a longer time period and we say the result is even worse. This is the same sort of thing that we can do in chemistry. That's where I say time is not the solution to all of this. Time can often be the enemy, particularly when you're making a compound that is a kinetic product and not a thermodynamic product.
Right, so what are the positives and the negatives? I think I discussed the negatives in that the universal common descent is primarily thinking about the 1.5% of the DNA and not the 98.5% of the intergenic DNA. That's a real problem because universal common descent has primarily been concentrated there. What does universal common descent have going for it? Many pieces of information that show that when you find a, a regulatory segment in a human being, you can find the same regulatory segment in the chimpanzee. But it's not just that. It's not just finding that same regulatory segment. It's finding that, that same regulatory segment straddled by the same regulatory segments on the chimpanzee that, we're, that human beings are straddled by. You see what I mean? So the levels of overlap are really quite significant. And it's not just between us and the chimpanzee. There's been estimates that between human beings and a dandelion, we're 70% the same. As a dandelion, yeah. Uh, when you look at that 1.5%, and it's not just looking at the regulatory segments that are there, it's looking at all that's around there and what, you, what patterns you should expect to see. So when you look at this mathematically, so I spent an entire afternoon with a geneticist. I said, take me through it. Boom, boom, boom. And you look at it after a while, you're just dizzy with how strong universal common descent is. So I concede universal common descent is very strong. It's when you get outside that, that uh, when you get outside the nine, other 98.5% project ENCODE is exposing. And then the orphan genes that we're finding more and more uniqueness that are unique to a certain taxon. Okay, so the question is, why is natural selection not the answer to the mechanisms? You'll have to ask your biology professor. This is what they are saying, that natural selection is insufficient. So we see these changes, <clears throat> and they themselves are saying that neutral drift is far more important. So in, all, in other words, you see changes from a, from a father to a son. And then you look, you can, you can map through ten generations. This we can do today. And you see these changes, and those changes look far more significant than anything that we can ever map in natural selection. So I think that they're saying that neutral drift can, can embody much more than we can ever see embodying through natural selection. That it's just strictly neutral drift. And, and again, that's not my words, that's their words. Okay, so, so the question is, conflict can be good for science, and how is that playing out between the things that I'm saying and the establishment that, that, that there's an origin of life community that's not real happy about what I'm saying. And there's, <clears throat> there's an evolution committee, a, a, a group that's also not real happy about what I'm saying. Do, do they welcome this, this conflict? The answer is no, they don't welcome the conflict. Not at all. And let me, let me put this in several ways. And, 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 and this is going to be an extended answer, but I think it's worthwhile. First of all, scientists are people. So if I have been working on something and developing a theory for the last 30 years and somebody comes along and says, uh-uh, it just doesn't work, I am going to naturally be very defensive of my theory. And, and uh, so people don't say, yeah, oh, I, I am so glad you came and you wrote that paper saying that my theory just doesn't work. I, I, you know, I feel so much better today now that your paper came out. No, that doesn't happen because scientists are people too. The other thing I can tell you what, what's happened in my own career. What's happened in my own career is I signed that statement in 2001. And this has affected my career in many ways. I have not been allowed into certain 
societies of science, certain organizations of science. And I will point out to them, I say, you know, you have certain requirements for getting in. I have more requirements than the people that are getting in. You know that. You can look through. So in other words, I have, I have, you look at number of publications, you look at impact of publications through something called the H-index. You look at number of citations, how many times your papers have been cited. You, and and you, you look, and there's, so there are real metrics how you can measure this. Their reply to me was, oh, you have more than twice as much as the people who are getting in, but you will never get in. Because when you signed that paper, that statement, that was a political statement. I said, oh, it was political? So first of all, what made it political? All I said is further research is warranted. You're the one who's naming it political. And in your society, 99% of the people agree just like you do. Only 1% of them think what I do. And that 1% is old and they're dying off. They got into the society before it was, was critical and soon they're going to be 100% because they like to say that our society is near unanimous on this. But it's meaningless, I tell them, because it's self-selecting. You only select those who agree with you. And so that, that's why it's there. So it is not welcomed and it is not welcomed at all. And it, it has affected my career in many ways. It has it affected me in promotions. It's affected me in, in being put in, in charge of certain institutes because people will say, oh, the guy doesn't believe in evolution. He shouldn't even be there. What does, how come evolution is always cast in the terms of belief? Nobody ever says the guy doesn't believe in chemistry. The guy doesn't believe in physics. He says the guy doesn't accept physics. The guy doesn't, that, that doesn't accept uh, uh, this thing of belief. They always put in the terms of religion. He doesn't believe in evolution, as if it's a religion. They themselves confess it's a religion and saying it's all about belief. What does that have to do with anything? What does that have to do with all my body of work as a scientist? Here is what I, the problem that I have with your evolutionary scheme. I don't see it. Here's what ENCODE is uncovering all the time. Here is what uh, uh, orphan genes are uncovering. And I can't see the mechanism. He and I work in this area of synthetic organic chemistry. We have mechanisms for things. Sometimes our mechanisms are proposals. We, can't, we haven't proven them yet. But if there's one piece of evidence that argues against them, we can't use it. But we come up with mechanisms. We propose mechanisms and then we build up the mechanisms with facts. There are, you don't see that in biology. I say, show me the mechanism. Show me how this can change here to there. There's no explanation. They say, oh, all the mechanisms are there. Show me, show me the paper. If it's so abundant, it must be in your textbooks. Show me. Show me where you have evolution of a complex system, where one system changes into another. Show me an example. I sat with, with two people in my office. One was, a, one was a Nobel Prize winner. One was in the National Academy of Science. And I asked them, do they really, I said, do you guys really understand this? Do you understand how you can have these sorts of changes? You know what they said to me? Nothing. When I get them alone, they, they say, Jim, I agree with you. When I had two of them there together, they wouldn't confess that they didn't believe, so they said nothing. But did you know that no response is a response in itself? And I was, I was at uh, uh, the Weissman Institute talking with a biophysicist. He was describing this, the, the, this part of the ear where there's a, there's a bar that vibrates, but that bar has a different modulus, a different stiffness the further as you go along the bar. It's very hard in the material system to modify the stiffness along the transition. And that's what allows us to hear all of these different tones. And I asked him, I said, 
could you give me an idea? How does something like this evolve? I mean, this guy studied that one piece for his career. He said, only a, a Jewish professor in Israel could speak like this. He says, oh, Jim, we all believe in evolution, but we have no idea how it happens. That's what they say in the back room. It's we believe in evolution, just like I believe Jesus is the son of God. It's a religion to them. And they have no idea how it happens. And I can give evidence of the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ, historical evidence. So even as a religion, it's weak. What my view on origin of life is? Yeah, as a uh, believer in Jesus, I'm just curious. Oh, oh, oh okay. All right, all right. So, so you mean beyond what we know from science? Right, right, okay. So in, in, the, in the classroom, I, I don't bring in my faith into the classroom and saying, uh, uh, God created the heavens and the earth in six days. I don't do that. And there's a reason I don't do that, because I hold myself to the same analytical standards that I hold my colleagues to. I say, you have got to show me, using our instruments of chemistry, you've got to show me how this can support whatever the topic would be, how this shows me where the information code came from. Or show me, using the tools of chemical science, how an interactome that's that complete, com complex, and remember, that was just the protein-protein interactome in a single yeast cell. That wasn't just... You, then you have protein-nucleotide interaction. You have nucleotide-nucleotide. You have all the other interactomes. But in any case, so if I am switching to what I believe, I believe the Bible. I believe the Bible is true. And I believe the Word of God is true. But the Bible doesn't give me a lot of specifics on this topic. It tells me that God created the world in six days. He created everything in it in six days. I don't understand within that what six days actually means. Is it six literal days? Is it six time periods? And the reason I say that is because the sun and the moon and the stars don't even come in until day four. So what really is a day? So I don't understand the days and I don't understand the mechanisms by which God did all of this. I know that he spoke it forth. So if he speaks it forth, something has to happen. There's a poof. It's there. Maybe. Well, where did those molecules assemble from? I don't have an answer from my Bible. You see what I mean? So I am a believer, I believe the text of the Bible, but I believe the text of the Bible was never made to be complete, to give us the full description. And that's why, you know, it's only this, this big, or the book of Genesis is only that big. Or the, 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 the creation story, which is, which is a couple of chapters, is only a couple of chapters. It's incomplete in the sense of giving me specifics. So a lot of specifics I don't have, but I believe that God created the heavens and the earth. But I cannot prove that. So for me, that is a belief. What is most important to me in life and what are my priorities? Um, that, that's, I, I didn't pay him to ask me this. Um, what happened to me on November 7th, 1977. Jesus Christ came into my room and I have never been the same. I wept that day at the feet of the risen Savior. And something happened to me where I wanted to live for him. I love chemistry, but it is nowhere close to the way that, that I love my Lord. And, uh, um, and I believe that I will spend an eternity to, to him, with him. And that's the most important thing to me. And the second most, is I would say, is the same as, as any parent in here, is my family. 
my wife and my children mean more to me than anything. And my, my son medically had a rough time last night and, and 80% of my CPU, even at this moment, is on my son and not here. And that's just the way, the way I think human beings are wired. So, so uh, uh, my love for Jesus Christ and what he's done for me on the cross and how he's given himself for me and then for my family are the most important things to me. Yeah, the, the Big Bang, actually, I, so the question is, do I believe there's anything, any legitimate parts of the theory to the Big Bang? You know, the Big Bang is not a description of the origin of life, right? So the Big Bang does, doesn't give us a real description of that in, 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 in the details of what I'm talking about today. But um, um, the Big Bang may well correspond to what the Bible is talking about, that there was a discrete beginning up until the scientific understanding of the Big Bang. People thought the Bible was nonsense to speak of a beginning. They thought it was more like Hinduism had it right, that it's forever, it's an eternity. But the Big Bang brought us right back to a definite beginning, a definite beginning to the universe. I am not a, enough of a physicist to be able to be a judge on that. But there are, again, a lot of pieces of evidence supporting that. So in other words, we have a lot of evidence supporting that our universe is still expanding. So in other words, if we were thrown out like a big bang, boom, we would be expanding outward. And there's a lot of evidence. You can talk about the red shifts as you look at, the, at, at how light changes with time. So in other words, today is going to be a longer day than was yesterday. We know that by a very small amount. We know that, I'm not talking about the seasonal changes, I'm talking about the 24 hours a day is going to be a little bit longer because of this expanding universe. That explains the expanding universe that, that, that uh, we are encompassed with. There's, there's an interesting theory put forth by a man named Gerald Schroeder. And I'm not sure, Gerald with a G and last name, you can spell it any way you want. If you do, just Google Gerald Schroeder, age of the universe, it'll come up. Google will capture it for you. And he, he wrote a document, now he's written a book on it. He, he's not a Christian, he's actually an Orthodox Jew. He lives in Israel, he's a physicist, PhD physicist. And he talks about how if you look at time, the relativity of time, because time is relative to where we are in the universe, where we are in this expansion. So in other words, if you're early on in the formation of the universe, early on in this expansion, and this is his theory, that what looks to us like, like very long time periods was very short in the beginning of the universe because each day is becoming longer and longer. If he's right, if he's right in his theory and he talks about it, he correlates that with the events of the Bible. This was created, then this, then this, then this. And he talks about that in the relativity of time and the expansion of the universe from this, 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 this 14.8 billion years uh, universe that we have since the Big Bang, which again assumes that the Big Bang is correct and Gerald Schroeder builds this theory upon it, then both the young age, the young earth creationists and the old earth creationists are right. They're both right. You say, how can they both be right? Because time is relative. To where you are looking from the place in the universe, are you looking at it from the instant of origin and counting from there or are you looking at it from where we are now and looking back? Very interesting theory. So, and I'm sure there's other theories that are going to come along. On, on this, and uh, uh, there's again, I don't have a lot of details from the book of Genesis, and it may well encompass the Big Bang theory. Okay, so I, I'm, 
I'm, I'm going to try to rephrase the question. It, 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 I, I, it kind of progressed. So um, DNA self-replicates. Let me just say DNA doesn't self-replicate. It has many other things working upon it to replicate. So if I just have DNA here, it doesn't self-replicate. I have to have a lot of other enzymes helping me along to get it to make another copy of itself, right? So DNA, so, so even if you had DNA, that doesn't make other DNA. Molecules aren't self-replicating that way. It has to have lots of other things working on it. So self-replication comes when you have all these other things that comes from a living organism that, that's working upon it. So from my understanding, and, and again, talking with, with, with biologists and geneticists, that, that most of the changes that are occurring with DNA, so the question was, can't, can't just changes in DNA account for these things? Yeah, there are small changes that occur from, from parent to child. The big changes have never been beneficial. They're, 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 you get far less number of beneficial ones than you get deleterious ones. Far more deleterious thing happens when you get big changes in DNA. The other question that you had about the 98.5% of what was formerly called junk DNA and is now called intergenic DNA, I'm not sure that I understood your question about that. Oh, oh so your understanding is that junk DNA, <clears throat> junk DNA is inactive. That is what was believed. You're running on decade-old information. <clears throat> yes, and that's why it was called junk DNA. It was inactive. Now it is no longer called junk DNA because it is not inactive. And we are finding, like I said, thousands of regulatory genes within that 98.5% that are very important to us as humans. And the monkeys have their own regulatory genes in their 98.5% of their intergenic DNA. Yeah, it's, it's very important now. So science evolves. Any other questions? Okay, we'll take this as our last question then. How should a person of faith live in a scientific and educational environment? And I, you, you know, I, things have changed over time. Um, when I started, I started my career as, a, as an assistant professor 30 years ago. And, and uh, um, I was 28 years old when I started my career, and these things were much less of an issue. In other words, they would not have affected my career. What I believe in, in, in my Bible life, what I believe ab about things, and whether I accept certain theories or not, as a chemist, it didn't affect me at all. I, I had my own little chemistry world. It's becoming harder and harder to live, I think, as a believer, on a secular college campus, because professors will use information that is incomplete and they will attack people and say these things are fa fact and it makes it very hard on those who come from a different background. So in other words, it's very hard for students to stand and to take the message that I have said today and to go and to stand in their evolutionary biology class. Their professors will call them out and, and uh, uh, really try to cut this thing down and sometimes they feel that they don't have the, the, uh, the knowledge to really battle with this person. I'll be glad to, to battle with this person and to, to call out what, what I know is incomplete in their theories. I think I gave a lot of credence to universal common descent of how good it really is when you stay within that 1.5%. But it's becoming harder and harder. And that's why I think that as Christians, 
as young people in a secular university, if you want to walk with Christ, it is very important to have community around you. Because the attack is coming much harder than it ever did. I never had a professor call me out on, on things that I believed. I never did. Back in my day, and I, I, it, I never had this sort of thing happen to me. But it does happen today. And people are made out to be idiots, to be stupid if they don't buy into certain mantra. And it's not just origin of life and evolution. There are other political hot topics that if you don't agree with the masses that you can be really picked on. So I believe the, that if you want to walk as a believer, it's important to have community and to have other believers around you. And then they can help you to secure the resources because there are people like me. I'm not the only one. We're a small number of us, but there are, there are a growing number of professors that are calling the community out on these issues. And I know the chemistry very well. Origin of life, nobody will know this better than me. So I can understand the chemistry very well. I'm not a biologist, so I, I talk about what I know in biology. But there are evolutionary biologists who believe very much like I do that the evidence just isn't there. And they are doing to biology what I am doing to chemistry. You know, and, 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 and so, so there, and the community can refer you to these people and that can give you strength in the midst of this. Because really, when the so-called experts are confronted, and I've seen this in my own life. I was brought up on a, on a podium with somebody who was a so-called expert in, in evolutionary sciences. And I got done with a presentation which was not terribly unlike this. And we each were given 40 minutes. And he only spoke for 20 minutes and finally said, give science a chance. And, and so when they are confronted by other experts who call them out, they're very different. They act very different than the way that they'll call out a student. You see what I mean? There, there's a differential of power that, that people in my position will execute toward other people that is unfair and is not right and should not be there. And then when they're confronted with an equal in power, then their response is very different. Just like I said to you, that all of my colleagues that I have confronted them on this in privacy of my own office have agreed with me. That's what I'm talking about. And so, so I, I think we need community. And with that, I'll end it, and I thank you so much for, for inviting me.